Well, Happy New Year. Let's pray. And Father, we pray in a sense of dedication, giving ourselves to you anew and afresh, because that's part of the communion service too. We are to acknowledge your sacrifice for us, and since one died for all, then all were dead, and those who live should henceforth live not unto themselves, but unto him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we dedicate ourselves to you in this new year. Lord, we don't know what we might face. Things are so unpredictable. But you are always the same. You can be trusted. You never change. And your truth is always true. So Lord, meet with us in truth. Speak to us by your spirit, to the spirit of our hearts. And show us Christ for a new year. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. In ancient Rome, uh, there was a god who was the god of beginnings, and his name was Janus. He was a god who had two faces, a bit monster-like, but uh, such was Janus. You can see his face on this coin. And uh, Janus had two faces because he was looking to the past as well as looking to the future, reflecting on what has been done and, of course, what is coming. He became, therefore, the symbol of resolutions. And it was the Romans who made, uh, took the name Janus, God of Beginnings, and put him at the beginning of their calendar, naming the first month January. Now, we do follow some Roman traditions, whether it's intentional or unintentional, but it has been a custom of uh, Americans to talk about New Year's resolutions. Statistics are all over the board, but one says that 50% of the people make them. And another statistic is the average uh, New Year's resolution lasts less than eight weeks. Actually, I think that's pretty good. I thought it was a shorter time period. But of those who make them, apparently around 7% actually follow them through. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Just quick hand up, quick hand down. <laughs> okay. I thought it would be more. I'm going to have a whole different introduction now. But anyhow, one of the most popular is to lose weight. People say, I'm going to lose weight in this upcoming year. And uh, that's what they're committed to. I want to get my weight below 180, said one man. And uh, about uh, two weeks into the year, he said, uh, I'm going to try to decrease my calories so that maybe I can get my weight below 190. <laughs> and then after that, maybe midway through the year, he said, I'm going to try to develop a more realistic attitude about my weight. <laughs> That's where we end up, right? Or the one who said, okay, I'm going to work out this new year. I'm going to work out five days in the gym every week. After a while, I'm going to work three days in the gym every week. And after that, I'm going to drive by the gym once a week. <laughs> and that's my commitment. But it's all over the board, isn't it? I'm going to drink less, pray more. 
I'm going to stay healthy, make money, help other people. Benevolence is often part of our New Year's resolution. One person said, I'm going to live my life to its fullest no matter who is president. (laughs) That's not a bad thought, really, because God is in control. But here's my favorite one. I resolve never to resolve again. And apparently many of you have taken that resolve. But let me say to you that the word resolve or the concept is biblical. Looking in our English translations, the NIV uses the word resolve but once. The King James or New King James will use that word a couple different times. And I want to use the two uses in our English translation where the word resolve is found. The very first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, For I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me say a word about the word resolve. It's not a unique word. The Greek word behind this English word is used almost a hundred times. But it's a word with a very broad, broad range of meaning. Crino can be the idea to distinguish between one or the other, thus to make a judgment, a conclusion. Or it can be a determination. I so resolve. And that's what you have here. The particular word is a word in the original language that means a decisive act in a point of time, and therefore a resolution has been made. In American history, resolutions are very important. I think of the one made in June of 1776 by the gentleman from Virginia Uh, Henry Lee, and he resolved that these colonies should be independent. And that was the first, uh, the beginning of the discussion that ended up with the Declaration of Independence, but it was first a resolution. I determined this, this is exactly what we should do. So Paul says, I have determined and resolved that when I go to Corinth, I'm not going to be distracted by other things. I'm not going to try to fit into the culture and mores of the day. I've determined to know nothing but Jesus and his crucifixion. So if we were to burn that into a resolve, it might look something like this. Resolved to live for Christ, first of all. And I would encourage you to make a resolve like that for a new year. Let Christ be my all and all. Let Christ be the center of my life. Now it's interesting when you think of Paul in Corinth because Corinth is a unique place, so different in many ways. We read in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians that Paul is writing to this church and he says in verse 4, I thank God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Jesus Christ. So he has a very warm relationship with this particular church. He says, you have been enriched in every way, eloquent words, 
deep knowledge. And God has given you every spiritual gift while you eagerly wait for the return of Christ our Lord. That's all good. This is a blessed church, an amazing church. But, Paul says, I appeal to you, my dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Paul says, I hear from Chloe's family that you're quarreling. And the arguments are based on who is your spiritual leader. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And some even say, well, I'm of Christ. And don't say it perhaps in the best uh, particular perspective. So Paul says, be unified, stop quarreling, focus on the message of the cross. And that's how he ends chapter one. Message of the cross is foolish to the Jews. It's foolish to the Greeks. The Jews want a sign from heaven. The Greeks are looking for human wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Chapter 1, verse 23. The Jews are offended. <laughs> the Gentiles say it's nonsense, but we don't care. Now, you imagine Paul going into the city of Corinth, which is a very sophisticated city and a very wicked city. The Acropolis, just outside of Corinth, had a temple filled with prostitutes who would come down every day and ply their trade in that city. And there were even footsteps that they found in the pavement leading the way up to the Acropolis with inviting words of pleasure. That's Corinth. In the museum at Corinth, they have found amazing things that were used in the medicinal world. If you had a problem with something, you would come, you would make a votive of it, an offering that was like a little sculpture of what the problem was. If it was an arm, if it was your head, if it was your foot. And that museum is filled with sexual organs because of the focus on immorality. So Paul said, when he got to chapter two, I come to you in weakness and I come to you in trembling and even somewhat timid, which is odd for Paul to say that. This was an intimidating place. On the one hand, he could say, I'm going to compete with the Greek uh, philosophers and uh, the rhetoricians, those who speak so eloquently because that's what the Greeks thought was important. Wonderful speech. But Paul wasn't going to be stopped by the immorality of the day nor challenged to compete with the philosophy of the, of the day. Paul said, I'm just going to preach Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2, when I came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you about God's plan. I just decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Christ and him crucified. So let that be our resolve this year to make Christ first. This same mighty apostle wrote in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. For to me, 
From my perspective, if you would ask me what I think, this is what I say, for to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. To live is Christ. Could you say that? Can I say that? This is the 300th anniversary of Jonathan Edwards writing out his resolutions. 1723, this brilliant mind, an American theologian, a great philosopher, Jonathan Edwards. He was very self-disciplined, and he sat down and wrote 70 resolutions that he planned to follow, and that was exactly 300 years ago, and I'm going to read all 70 to you. No, I won't. <laughs> but a couple of them, being sensible, he says, that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will and for Christ's sake. So that's kind of the preamble. He also resolved to read them every week, 70. Here's one. Resolved never henceforth till I die to act if I were any way my own but that I am entirely and altogether God's. That's a good one. Resolve to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him. Resolved, this is number 28, to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Or how about this one? Resolve never to count that a prayer, nor let that, uh, nor let that, uh, those words pass as a prayer, or as a petition of prayer, that I cannot hope that God will answer it. Nor will I make a confession which I cannot hope God will accept it. And then he says, I frequently hear of people in old age say how they wish they would have lived, resolved that I will live in such a way so that when I die, I will not be ashamed. Those are some pretty good ones. What would it look like if you resolved to make Christ first above everything else? For me to live as Christ. What would it mean? It would mean, as Jonathan Edwards said, to commit yourself to the regular reading of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to give you a plan. I'm not going to give you uh, uh, any type of legalistic law except daily be in the Scriptures. And then daily let that Scripture be in you. Turn it into prayer. How about a resolve right there? Why don't you resolve daily to be in the scriptures and let that scripture be in you? I'm not gonna ask for hands. I was too embarrassed the first time. But I encourage you to take that. Will you? You say, but pastor, you know, after eight weeks, I'm gonna forget. You just told us no one lasts beyond eight weeks. You know what you do? Here's a novel idea. Start again the next day. Yeah, just start again. What if you hit on 300 out of 365 days? It's not bad. But I'm a perfectionist. Get over it. You're a sinner. You're broken. 
You're going to fall. You're going to get sick. Ah, but determine to let the scriptures get in you. Read them every day. Pray them in. Will you do that? Because you want Christ to be your all in all. By the way, Paul also says in this verse, I'm determined to know nothing among you Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's thinking of the person of Christ and the passion of Christ. Sometimes we describe the death of Christ as the passion of Christ. And that's why this is a great verse as we come to the new year, as we celebrate communion, that we must live in light of the gospel, which is what? Jesus loves us so much. God loves us so much. He sent his son to die in our place. And when we turn from our sin and by faith trust the Lord and the work of Christ on the cross, we are justified. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. And the gospel is I live by grace and grace alone. It's nothing I can merit. It's nothing I can hold on to by my good deeds. I live by grace and grace alone. That's why the communion service reminds us that Jesus had to die. That's how serious our sin is. And endure the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. Never get over that. Live in the power of the gospel every day. And if you focus on Christ as your all in all, you'll be reminded that he loved you so much he died in your place and he will forgive. There's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So be single-minded in life and ministry. Don't be intimidated by the world around you to be silent. Let them call the message of the gospel foolish, but it's the power of God, it's the wisdom of God, it's the glory of God. And don't be distracted by other things in this crazy world. We have a great hymn that we sometimes sing. I am resolved, remember that? I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me. Still, I will enter in. I will hasten, hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Let that be your new year resolve. But there's a second time that the word resolved is used, and it's not in the NIV, so I actually go to the New King James translation. My journey has been interesting. When I came to Christ, I started memorizing or learning and reading the old authorized King James Bible, right? Remember that? <laughs> KJV. Um, however, I had a Schofield edition which changed some of the words, so that was not acceptable to some people, but that's the Bible I had, and I didn't know any different. And then they came out with a new King James which took away some of the archaic words and the these and thous, and so I moved to that, and that became my Bible for a decade and a half. And then, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, I came to South Church. 
I do too. <laughs> so I'm using the New King James translation. Rick Hawks, the pastor who came to South between Dr. Sugden and myself, moved the congregation to the NIV, 1984. And I had to make a decision. Would I take the church backward or continue the forward movement? And I made the change because some of my best friends who were great Bible expositors were using the NIV, I embraced it as well. And that's been my Bible since 1995 for the most part. The problem is when I try to memorize scripture, I'm a mess. <laughs> so for the nativity uh, narratives, I went back to the old King James because that's still what's in my heart. And I'm not here to say that one is better than another. I'm just to say that sometimes the translation's a little different, and sometimes it's good to read a different translation to get a fresh, fresh perspective. So here's the New King James. They use the word resolve in Romans 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. So here's another word, resolve. Now, if we were to boil that down into some type of resolution, it, it might be something like this. To live for others, second of all. So first of all, to live for Christ. And second of all, to live for others. Background to Romans 14, very, very important. The Apostle Paul, again, so we're dealing with Pauline perspectives and philosophy, which are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is writing in chapters 14 all about some of the, the struggles Christian have, Christians have with different convictions. Yes, it was happening in the very first century. Paul deals with doctrine in the early book of Romans, gets to chapter 12 and says, now let's live the doctrine, let's apply the doctrine. And when he gets to 14, he says, I know there's a big problem out there among you people. So he says in Romans 14, 1, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. That never happens today. For instance, one person believes that it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience, weak conscience, will eat only what? Only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down their spiritual noses, I just added that, <laughs> on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. So we've got half the people looking down on others because, you know, hey, you're not as spiritual as I am. You don't have the freedom I do, poor, poor, weak Christian. And then the others are saying, but what you're eating is not right. I condemn you in the name of Christ. And I bet you their church business meetings were a hoot. <laughs> and that's the way we still live, often. They had a problem with not just what they were eating, but the day that they would worship. And Paul wisely says in verse 7 of chapter 14, we don't live for ourselves, 
And when we die, we don't die for ourselves. We belong to the Lord. We should live for him and die for him. And in so doing, think about others before we think about ourselves. Again, Paul, taking from the book of Philippians chapter 2, esteem others as more important than you are. Paul says, so why do we condemn one another? The word condemn is here multiple times in the chapter. Why do we condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will declare allegiance, confess. Yes, each one of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Here's verse 13. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble or fall. There's actually a play on words here for the same Greek word is used, and it's translated judge and resolve in the New King James. But it sounds like this. Don't judge others, but judge this, not to put a stumbling block in your brother's way. In other words, think of other people before you think of yourself. So it's, it's not me, but Christ. And then it's not me, but others. I must adjust my freedoms and agendas in light of those around me. There are four theological truths that come out of this rich chapter of Romans 14. Number one, God has accepted these people who differ from you. Did you know that? God has accepted people who disagree with you. I'm going to let that sink in just for a moment. Christ has died for them, and he's brought them into his family. And all of us, one day, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains me because this I judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and rose again on their behalf. And if we love God, we must love our brother, our brother and our sister, and we must determine not to do anything that will hurt them spiritually. Don't let your life hinder the growth of another child of God. That's the point that's being made. So resolve to live for others, second of all. Jonathan Edwards had some things to say about this. Resolved, let there be something of benevolence in everything I say. That was just a brief quote because almost every resolve of Jonathan Edwards is long. Number 16, resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to their dishonor. Resolved, never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, then I'll speak. <laughs> so basically, I'm not going to speak anything wrong about anyone else unless truth 
must be told for the greater good and not for my glory. So what kind of, what kind of tangible resolve should we make to put others above ourselves? Pray for them. Examine your life to see if there is a stumbling block that causes others to sin and remove it. Is it not interesting when we think of the first one, we are putting something in our life, making Christ the center. When we think of Romans 14, we're taking something out of our life, something that might hurt our brother. There is the taking in and the taking out. There is the addition and the subtraction. Sanctification is dealing with sin and killing it and growing in grace and implanting virtue in your life by the grace of Almighty God. Our lives should be praying for others, coming alongside of them in acts of kindness, demonstrable acts of kindness, doing things and not looking for credit, living for the good of others. And we know these things, but happy are we if we do them. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, once gathered together all of the uh, people in his army, all those who were serving, and he said, I want you servants to bear in mind that the nature of a fire is to go out. We all would agree with that. We've done a campfire. We've burned a fire in our fireplace at the home. It's the nature of a fire to be burned out. So, number one, keep it stirred. Number two, add fuel, keep it fed. And number three, remove the ashes. If you have fire in your heart for Jesus Christ today, amen, praise God. It's a gift from him. Don't let it go out. What are you gonna do? Keep it stirred. How do you do that? Get in the word every day and pray. Attend faithfully the meetings of God's people. Don't forget the communion service. Keep it stirred. Secondly, keep it fed. Add truth, nourishment to your soul. Like logs to the fire. Add them. I've had some people say, you know, I'm just having a rough time spiritually. I feel so bad. I'll, I'll ask a simple question. When's the last time you were in the Bible? You really read it to feed your soul. I can't remember when. That's me too. I mean, that's the direction my heart goes in unless I keep it fed. And then remove the ashes. Take out the sin that hinders and run the race with patience. This is used quite a bit, but I think it is still appropriate, and if you haven't heard it, maybe it'll be helpful to you. But the real path to joy in life is to have Jesus first, others second, and you come in third. Does that make sense? Does that not sound like what Paul is saying with his resolves? 1 Corinthians 2, nothing but Christ, Christ above all. Romans 14, others above me. And then, and only then, dealing with my own difficulties. Help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way 
that even when I kneel to pray, my prayers will be for others. Help me in all I say and do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. So let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain may efforts be to rise again unless it be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others so I might live for thee. Let's pray. Lord, it's a new year and this is a gift. We look back with a face to the past and remember great victories and we praise you. We can say, Ebenezer, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. But we look back with failures and we grieve over those and we're thankful for mercy. Lord, we have a face to look toward an unknown future. But what steals us is the fact that you know the future and that nothing intimidates you. That your word is always true and trust in you is never misplaced. And if we make you first and live to serve others, we can experience the wonderful joy that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So be it resolved today at the beginning of 2023 that it's Christ and Christ alone at the center of my life and I am focused on ministering to others for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.